0: Well, I greet you in the Master's name this morning. I've been thinking for some time that I would like to continue the tradition that John has started here to greet you in the Master's name. I just appreciate that so much. And um, the Master. One of the things that has attracted me to it has been The the connotation of His Lordship in that term is Jesus, the Lord of your life. And if you are a believer this morning, you would say yes to that. In our Sunday school lesson this morning, there was a focus. It said, to let the grace of God work in us effectively... So we become more like our master. This morning message this morning's message, I believe, holds the key to how the grace of God can work effectively in our lives. So I thank you for your prayers again for me this week. It seemed like the Lord was really working on me this week, and He was working on me on the subject of the message. The title of the message this morning is The Genius of Humility. And he was working on me on humility. So I'm going to share with you this morning some of the things that he showed me this week. There was a nun who was renowned for her great miracles. The Pope heard of it and sent his servant to report on her witness and work. Bespattered with mud and weary from the long journey, the papal messenger finally reached his destination and was ushered into the presence of the famous nun. Putting his muddy boot up, he asked if she would help him with it. Disdainfully, she refused such an humbling task. The servant returned to the Pope saying, "'Sir, you need not concern yourself. There is no miracle because there is no humility.'" What part does humility play in a miracle? I'm going to leave that question with you for a little bit. As we go through the message this morning, I'd like for you to think about your own heart. Not the heart of your neighbor, not the heart of your brother or sister. Your heart. I'm going to do some reading this morning from a book. Called Royal Insignia. The Good Book tells us in its opening pages how man, God's highest creation, fell by pride, which has henceforth become the insignia of the kingdom of this world. Read an advert, listen to the media, and you will immediately recognize the insignia of the serpent. If this be true, then every born-again child of God ought to wear the insignia of Christ in His humility, meekness, and lowliness. Christ's life in the Gospels was one of entire renunciation of His royal aspect. If He were to redeem mankind, then He must, as the last Adam, walk as God intended our first parents to walk. If the first Adam climbed, the last Adam must descend. If man soars, Christ must come in lowliness. Because man seeks the highest seat, he took the lowest because man wishes to be as gods, he became man, even a babe. Because man desires costly dwellings, he had not where to lay his head and became and began his life in a manger. Because man chooses elite suburbs, Christ chose Nazareth as his home. Because man strives to for wealth, he became poor. Because man disdains his inferiors, he often chose the poor and outcast as his friends, because man chooses men of renown to rule and govern the nations, he chose humble fishermen from Galilee to be his disciples. The life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ are standing rebuke to every form of pride to which man men are liable. Pride of ability, I can of my own mine own self do nothing. Pride of birth and rank. Christ said, or they said of Christ, Is not this the carpenter's son? Pride of bigotry. Christ said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Pride of intellect. Christ said, As my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Pride of learning. They said of Christ. How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Pride of personal appearance. He hath no form nor comeliness. Pride of reputation. A friend of publicans and sinners. Pride of respectability, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Pride of self-reliance, he went down to Nazareth and was subject. Pride of self-will, I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Pride of success, he was despised and rejected of men. Pride of superiority, I am among you as he that serveth. Pride of wealth, the son of man hath not where to lay his head. the life of Christ. If you want to turn to the text passage, you can turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. So the signature of Jesus' life was humility. I want us to note in that passage that it was not simply actions of humility. Humility. There were actions of humility there. But it was a mind of humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And out of that mind of humility, there was a foundation there that brought forth actions of humility. He stepped downward, downward, downward. From where He began, with the Father, with the glory of God, He stepped downward, 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 even to the point of death. But His steps downward led to His exaltation. Because if you go on reading where I stopped in verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. So here we are 2,000 years after the life of Jesus. What was it about his life. What made his life so significant in human history? It wasn't his ancestry. It wasn't his education. It wasn't his friends or his money or his army. None of the things that the kings of this world have built empires around. Was it His teaching that established His kingdom? How did His message of truth and love take root and grow? to expand into so many aspects of the world that we live in today. It was the signature of His being that was behind that message that gave it the power. It was Christ's humility that was at the foundation of His teaching that gave it the strength A genuine humility that lended the authority to His teaching. God's message of truth and love could only be transmitted properly through a vessel of genuine humility. And so God Himself came as a man to show us what humility looked like and what truth and love looked like through that humility. And through that stepping down, Jesus was exalted. I want to go back to a miracle a little bit. A miracle is an event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws. It's something that defies the laws of nature as we know them. So, how can we go up by stepping down? By what scientific law can we rise by stepping down? God demonstrates his genius through the miracle of his Son. 1 Corinthians 1 beginning at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For us, wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So, it's saying in that passage that God chose things that weren't esteemed by humanity to bring about His work. To bring about a mighty work. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And He did that for the purpose as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now that prophecy came from Jeremiah 29, which says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So let him glory in this, that he knows me. If our glory is knowing Him, then it is His work and it's not our strength that we have to glory in. But we lift up his miracle, the miracle that sons of Adam can be the sons of God through humility. I want to reread something in that part that I just read. I don't know if you caught was talking about uh, pride being this world's signature. If this be true, then every born-again child of God ought to wear the insignia of Christ in His humility, meekness, and lowliness. So we ought to wear the humility of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 5b says, Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. And you see how that compares with what we were talking about. Christ's humiliation led to exaltation, led to be lifted up. And Peter is saying, That God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you want the grace of God to be effective in your life. Well, it's going to be through humility. Because God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're supposed to humble. Why are we supposed to humble ourselves? Because God is then on our side. Or maybe we should say, then we are on God's side when we humble ourselves. What does this lowering process consist of? An unwelcome demolition. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name. These outspoken, misguided men voice the intent of every human being who has lived since Adam. Since the fall, every man desires to build a tower and a name. The dominant child goes about it in the family. The growing boy does it in the field of sport. The young girl goes about it in the ballroom or on the dance floor. In the schoolroom, in the office, and alas, in the church, we all want to build something. We build ego, egos, reputations, circles of influence, personal friendships. Business empires, and so it goes. Build, build, build. Our youthful energies, our budding intellect, and if we are not careful, our religious experiences all go to build something. At its height, it takes expression in the words of the old king Nebuchadnezzar, is not this great Babylon that I have built. The psalmist David saw the folly of it all and exclaimed, except the Lord build the house they labor in vain that build it. God is the universe. Versal demolisher, He must destroy the fruits of our labors while there is time to build something that lasts. Jesus said that the man who built without his instruction was building on the sand. In love, our God would lay low our treasured castles of self, only that he might build. His word to, to Jeremiah, newly commissioned as his prophet was, to root out, to pull down, and to destroy, and to throw down. Only after these four operations of demolition were performed would he proceed with God's help to build and plant. In Jeremiah 1:10, Jesus said, "Every plant which my Father, which my heavenly Father, hath not planted, shall be rooted up." Is it your tower? Or is God building a tower? Whose reputation do you care about? Whose identity do you want recognized? You see, these are issues of our heart. Our reputation, our reputation, our identity must come down. Our tower must come down. God wants to build uh, a temple for Himself. was written by a woman named Madame Guyon. She was a French lady and she suffered for her faith at the hands of her own country people. You will not attain sanctification save by much trouble and labor and by a road which will appear to you quite contrary to your expectations. You will not, however... Be surprised if you are convinced that God does not establish his great works except upon the nothing. It seems that he destroys in order to build. He does it so He does it so in order that His temple He designs for Himself, built even with much pomp and majesty, but built nonetheless with the hand of men, should be previously so destroyed that there remains not one stone upon another. It is also It is these frightful ruins which will be used by the Holy Spirit to construct a temple which will not be built by the hands of men, but by His power alone. God chooses for carrying out His works either converted sinners whose past iniquity serves as counterpoise to the the exaltation, or else persons in whom He destroys and overthrows that own righteousness and that temple built by the hand of men build so built upon quicksand quicksand, which is the resting on the created, and in these same works, and, and that's kind of wordy, but what it's saying there is that um, here he takes people who are converted from sinful lives and he uses that sinful past as a, as a that sinful past ruin as a place on which to build his beauty. Or he takes people who were working for their own righteousness and he destroys that righteousness, that stuff, that, what they had built upon the sand. And then he begins after that has been destroyed. In place of being found, instead of they were on the sand instead of on the living stone, Jesus Christ. All that he has come to establish by entering the world is affected by the overthrow and destruction of that same thing. He wished to build. He established his church in a manner that seemed to destroy it. Oh, if men knew how opposed is the own righteousness to the designs of God! We should have an eternal subjection of humility and distrust to what is present constitutes our soul. What at present constitutes our sole support? And she was talking about the the institution that was not ordered by what God had built. And then Charles Spurgeon wrote this, It seems that Jehovah's way is to lower those whom He means to raise and to strip those whom He intends to clothe. If it is His way, it is the wisest and best way. If I am now enduring the bringing low, I may well rejoice because I see in it the preface to the lifting up. So our tower must come down. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down arguments... And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What did Jeremiah say we would glory in? Should glory in? In knowing the Lord. Notice what it says in this passage that those arguments and high things are exalted against the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God. And the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And they're to bring down those things. Bring down um, the word there that's translated, the Greek word that's translated arguments, is reasoning. So it's not to destroy someone in an argument, it's to bring down our human reasoning, to break that down. And every high thing that exalts itself. And to bring what? To bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So these strongholds need to come down to open the way for us to experience glory. Why, why is it that the Christians should be hated by the world when they are loving in disposition and always desire for their fellow men's reputation? The author then proceeds to answer his own question. Consider this. The mission of Christians is to take from men something that is utterly dear to them, to reduce them to a condition that seems to them worse than slavery to carry them away into perpetual exile, to foil them in every enterprise that they have at heart, in fact. We may as well say it, to kill them. Do you start back in horror? Hear me to the end. There is not anything so dear to the man of this world as the idea of his own unblameableness. Every day of his life he has been engaged in rearing in his inner thought world a lofty edifice, a tower of Babel, to answer at once the purpose of a monument in his own praise and to enable him when the time shall come to step from its pinnacle into heaven. Every day he has been busy carving to some answerable shape the stone of his daily experience. He has diligently all his life long done battle with, his, with the insolent voices of a mis- miscriant conscience. Establishing by successive victories the difficult fact that he, that he is, take him for all in all, one whom God must look down upon with benignity, if not with admiration. You come to him in the name of Christ for the very purpose of depriving him of this idea of his own goodness. You aim, your aim is to do what, that tormenting conscience of his with all its advantages of time and place failed to do. Do you think he has fought with the Goliath of his own conscience so many times and so successfully to be now disconfitted by you? Will he allow you to be victorious over him and take from him the idea of his own integrity in the sight of God after he has gone through a thousand fights to obtain the pearl of price, You tell him that he is a mere rebel against the Most High God, that he has never being anything else, and that all his righteousness were contemptible in the sight of heaven, that he deserves the wrath of God, and you ask him to take this same view of himself. You ask him to adjudge himself to be worthy of everlasting punishment. How easy were it for him to, in comparison, to surrender all his worldly substances. Self-esteem permeates his whole nature like the fibers of cancer, and to bid him part with it is like bidding him surrender life. So it's saying that the reason why the Christian is hated by the world is because that his message is a message that takes away man's significance and calls him to humility. Complete humility. Humility so great as if it were his very life would be given up. And God has chosen to use imperfect men as His messengers of that message. And not only does that happen, must that happen if we're going to share the gospel with others, but that also must happen with us, with the church. Because we are also to help each other to mature in Christ, to grow in Christ. No Christian knows the entirety of who God is. So we should each see each other as someone who knows something about God that I don't know. We should see each other with humility on our part and openness as if they could help us to see God more clearly. And they can. Why is it so easy to resist the help of others? We see the good that Christ has done in our lives and we say, that person out there needs to know about Jesus. He needs to know the Gospel. He needs to be able to experience what I've experienced in Christ. But do we think about the continued need for humility and growth in my life? And the fact that God might use my brother to speak to me And to challenge me and to guide me to that higher level of humility. Or lower level of humility, maybe I should say. To bring that tower down. To bring my imaginations down. Luke 14, 26 and 27 says, If any man, Jesus says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the Christian subjects himself to the daily humiliation and death of the cross. Death. Humiliation not words that we like as humans. What then? What happens when our tower is reduced to where not one stone is left upon another? My master has an elixir that turns all base and worthless substances to gold. From rubble, stones... He fashions palaces, most beautiful and stately to behold. He garners with a craftsman's skillful care all that we break and weeping cast aside. His eyes see uncut opals in the rock and shapely vessels in our trampled clay. The sum of life's lost opportunities, the broken friendships and the wasted years. These are the raw materials. His hands rest on the fragments, weld them with his tears." A patient alchemist, he bides his time, broods while the south winds breathe, the north winds blow, and weary self at enmity with self works out its own destruction, bitter slow. Then, when our dreams have dwindled into smoke, our gallant highways petered out in mire, our airy castles crumbled into dust, leaving us stripped of all but save fierce desire, he comes with feet deliberate and slow. Who counts a contrite heart, his sacrifice. No other bidders rise to stake their claims. He only on our ruins sets a price. And stooping very low, engraves with care, his name indelible upon our dust. And from the ashes of our self-despair, kindles a flame of hope and humble trust. He sees no second sight on which to be he seeks no second sight on which to build, but on the old foundation stone by stone, cementing sad experiences with grace, fashions a stronger temple of his own. God wants to build on our ruins. So we can joyfully face the ruin because of the hope that He will build above. What does this mean for us? In Acts 13, 40 and 41, it said this to the Jews, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Something that you won't believe. That sounds like a miracle, doesn't it? God wants to work a work in our day. God wants to work a work in our church right here. God wants to work a work in our community. A host of works, a host of miracles. But the road to genuine humility has a ditch on both sides. There's self humiliation. Or we put ourselves down in an effort to look humble. Or do works of humility to prove our humility. Or we can begin to claim God's work for ourselves. The work that He has done. The things we do for good become a source of pride. Pride. And we can begin to compare ourselves favorably over others or begin to think of ourselves as indispensable to God. But it's only through genuine humility. Our text verses say that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. But the source of that obedience was a mind of humility. The foundation of a heart of humility is essential to the work of the body of Christ today. Both among ourselves and in our relationships with others outside the church. And unless genuine humility be the signature of our lives, the truth and love we seek to share will be rendered useless. Because it'll be built upon sand instead of on the rock. But where humility holds sway, we have the making of many miracles. May God be with us as we cast ourselves on Him.